0: Welcome to FSISAC's podcast, FinCyber Today. I'm Elizabeth Heathfield, Chief Communications Officer at FSISAC. We're shooting here at the America Spring Summit, where more than a thousand members of our community have converged to share knowledge and network over a couple of days. Our next guest has had some pretty interesting experiences to share lately. Jerry Perullo, former CISO of Intercontinental Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange, uh, former chairman of FSISAC's board, and most recently interim CISO of Silicon Valley Bank. We're gonna talk in detail about a topic of growing interest to our community, board presentation and interaction. With boards more engaged in cyber issues than ever, CISOs need to understand how to present to them at the right level. But we gotta get the juicy stuff out first. So since you left ICE and your stock exchange, you've been doing a whole bunch of different kinds of things. You have a podcast, you've been become a professor, and you also got a very interesting opportunity <laughs> <laughs> at SVB, want to tell us about it?
1: Um, sure. I mean, My podcast is Life After CISO, and so the general premise of there, they go through all the things, that the audience being a CISO, that they might go into afterwards. And one I never foresaw, and, and it didn't make it into my initial podcast episodes either, um, was this unique opportunity of an interim CISO. And, um, and just to be clear, you know, that was at Silicon Valley Bank, um, not at the time of the, of the crisis that, that later occurred, um, but actually before that, they, they had an amazing story about growing overnight and becoming a large financial institution. So that position was really about, um, helping, you know, manage the massive growth that they had and the extra regulatory scrutiny. And so I popped into that. And then as you can imagine that the, the needs there evolved very quickly. And so it became an even different type of interim CISO gig after, um, a couple months. Yeah. What, what was that like? You know, uh, the culture there, it, it, everybody talks about having culture, and uh, there in particular, it was it was very real. And so it was a really tight knit team. Uh, the communication um, was constant, and you know people really rallied uh, whenever there was a need. So unfortunately, that turned into crisis. But I'll tell you, the one silver lining in it was having such a tight knit team. You really saw people. That just said, um, let's figure out what we need to do this day, this hour, this minute, whatever it's going to be, and totally focus on that. And, um, and and things really got hyper execution prone and action oriented. And, and, and that was a silver lining. And I was glad to be a part of that team and, and go through that, you know, once in a lifetime experience. Yeah.
0: Do you have any advice for CISOs who find themselves in a kind of existential crisis?
1: Sure. Yeah, right. And this is much broader in that situation, but uh, I, I think you know one of the themes you hear a lot about C- from CISOs is is having a seat at the table and want to be part of these discussions. And ultimately, it manifests as people talking about reporting lines and compensation and board opportunities and all of that as well. But it, you know, in the early days, long well, you, we used to have this saying at ICE that you first you do the job and and then you get the title, and that was always the case. There was never a Apply for a promotion, and now you have it. And you've got to change your wardrobe, and you know figure out what you're going to do. It was always great work for the last X years. Now your title's changed. Does you know, anything be different? Of course not. This is what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that the same thing is true of kind of having a seat at the table. That rather than wait to be invited, um, you need to be cross-functional, and you need to help outside of cybersecurity. And I often talk with startups about that because in the early days you can't have one person who's only waiting for cybersecurity topics and otherwise being idle. They've got to chip in. But you know, somewhat ironically, even in in a in a massive company at a time of crisis, I think it's the same thing. You know, as a cybersecurity leader, you need to be helping with anything and everything and any need, and you need to model that for your team because they really need to to be the same way. Mm.
0: All right, so let's um, shift into the main topic of our conversation, which is. Um, how CISOs need to interact with boards in the changing times that we're living in. Um, And I'm super interested in the framework that you developed um, that gives some guidance to CISOs. So let's just get into it. Sure.
1: (laughs) Sure, yeah, this has been a a real focus of mine, even toward the end of my career 1.0, let's say, and when I joined the FSI SAC board, which I was on for, I think, six years. You whatever the term limit is. I think it's yeah two times three. And then I was chairman for the, the last couple of years. Um, one of the things that I really focused on there was modeling it after a public board because for a couple of reasons, the selfish one was that many of us on the board were doing that because we were somewhat limited in, 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 from uh, serving on public boards at our day jobs. Mm-hmm. And so we could serve on non-for-profit boards. That was certainly the case for me. And rather than a typical fundraiser-type gig, this was a really great um, execution-focused board of directors with a lot of really critical decisions, public-private sector partnerships, um, a nice-sized staff, real money flowing through. And so it was a great way to kind of practice and rehearse for a public company board. Um, But then separately from that, um, I think that we really used it to um, practice for interfacing with our own boards back at home, so to speak. Right, Because you need to be at the other side of the table, and it really opens your eyes up. And so we had um, you have the CISO and, and the senior management staff of FSISAC were reporting to us regularly, and we went through it, that cadence. Um, but we really modeled after public company board. Uh, as I transitioned out of ICE, I completed an NACD program, a board education program, which I've been telling anyone who's willing to listen now they a CISO that they should go and do that early in their career. Because it's not just a ticket to get out of your job and go into a board, um, but rather it opens your eyes to the other side of the table again, and 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 not just you know with how people feel about cybersecurity, but how directors are thinking about risk holistically, and you know everything that comes with being uh, you know in a, a fiduciary of a, especially a public company. So having gone through all that, uh, and and then having uh, at ICE we went public in two thousand five, so I mean I had eighteen years of public company experience reporting initially to the audit committee. And then after Dodd-Frank, we had risk committees, and I shifted over to there. And so like anything successful in my career, there was a lot of trial and error. I'm sure I screwed it up a bunch. But when I reflect back on that, and then what I'll be thinking I learned as I transitioned out, um, it's definitely helped me focus and, and come up with a few you know, tricks, if you will.
0: Yes. So it's called trick. Uh, before we get there, You know, one thing that I think is also interesting is that it seems to be a shift from a regulator perspective in, you know, accountability, requiring accountability for cyber oversight from boards. So there's also a kind of perfect storm in that way in that, you know, boards need to care a lot more now. And so the question is, what are they getting like from a reporting perspective from the CISO? So with that, yeah, let's get into
1: it. Yeah, and I should add, in my my experience, especially since um, I've helped a lot of boards, I've presented the boards, and I've sat as an advisor to different boards, and I've been through a lot of board meetings, again, on the other side of the table, helping CISOs prep, seeing the material, that sort of thing. So I I think that's helpful because my opinions on how people are doing aren't just limited to the the ones I had seen organically before. Um, so first of all, risk management isn't new for board of directors, right? It's it's been critical for years, and it's it's meant different things, ranging from geopolitical ref to weather to certainly financial risk in our space. Um, so the reason why cybersecurity is in there is simply because it's elevated as a risk. So if it were anything else, if it suddenly it ramped up the way cybersecurity had, then of course it would it would jump in as well. Uh, on the regulatory side, it's I think I had a really unique vantage point being at ICE because. We, we ran companies that were regulated by different divisions of the SEC even before we bought the New York Stock Exchange. The New York Stock Exchange is regulated by the SEC and a lot of different divisions that have cybersecurity and critical infrastructure-related regulation. Uh, and then separately from that, the New York Stock Exchange is a regulator. It's a it's a self-regulatory organization, and it promulgates rules upon public companies, which is a really unique mm. viewpoint. Okay. And what we see now is really the um, the SEC body over public companies, right? Because that's where, and those rule, rules end up coming through the exchanges. And that's where we get into the requirements of directors and what's expected on an annual and quarterly reports and what's expected on the proxy statement. And that's where we're seeing the, the most public evidence of more regulatory scrutiny. Um, and, and what it's really calling for right now, and, and this is due to change any month now, but it's really calling for right now is kind of a step one is more transparency into the cybersecurity expertise of of the directors. What's not in there, but but everyone feels is implied, is that there should be some cybersecurity literacy, but that's not quite explicit yet. Mm -hmm. Probably will be soon. Now, separately from the public company side, uh, having been under uh, and run a lot of global subsidiaries that each had independent regulators in different countries, different regions, I can tell you that of course, cybersecurity has been on the forefront of those regulators, especially when you're critical infrastructure. But indeed, over the past 10 years or so, we've seen the, the questions start to, to migrate towards or evolve towards um, governance more and more up to and including the board of directors. So, for example, here at FSISAC, we deal in threat intelligence all the time. And most of the intelligence that we handle as, a, as an industry is pretty tactical. You had know, things to like email around. Hey, there's this fraud campaign. Be on the lookout for this. And then we would get hit by regulators with these questions like, How do you deliver threat intelligence to the board? And so I seen people react to that by trying to just shovel this tactical intelligence to the board or kind of subscribe in the mailing list. And that was one of the things that drove me to say, How do I satisfy that ask while actually delivering something that the board can, it can digest? can actually enjoy and act upon, lo- yeah. more, most importantly.
0: Okay, so let's talk about TRIC as a framework and just walk us through it.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah. So I, I kind of stumbled into this little acronym, and the only thing I don't like about it is that I always want the liberty to change, and that's going to be tough if I, if I already <laughs> called out the TRIC, that made an acronym. Uh, but the idea is threats, risks, incidents, and compliance. And I think it works pretty well. And as I know it, I've helped a lot of companies out, and I always use that. Uh, through, through my consulting side, adversarial risk management, I have a ton of templates. Some of them are, you know, policies and um, run books and, and actual procedure guides or risk management and that sort of thing. Uh, but one of them is a, is a board template and the threats, that's really about setting the mission. Why is the cybersecurity program even there? And it may seem obvious, but there's a lot of different types of threats and you can't address them all. And it's really easy for, Not just a board but even a a security organization to just kind of manage by magazine and read the headlines and say oh there was a big breach at say equifax or something like that and immediately were we susceptible to that what can we do about that and we need some kind of filter because we're not keeping up with the amount of incidents and so the threat portion of trick is really about and the way i do it anybody could do it different ways the way i usually do it is i use a heat map which is a classic risk management tool that board directors will be familiar with from others, from operational and financial risk management. And I try to taxonomize, if that's a word, all the cyber threats into just a few buckets, like sabotage, data theft, extortion. And they're grouped by what the threat actor is trying to do. And then we move them around on the map and once a quarter in, in a risk committee meeting show any changes based on the ecosystem. So, I, for example, there was a period when um, years ago now, but I have used this for a while, when a lot of the people that were, a lot of the, the adversaries who were uh, in the ransomware business pivoted over uh, to crypto jacking, hijacking infrastructure for cryptocurrency mining. And you actually saw less ransomware attacks for a period. And using that construct, the next quarter, you know, we moved down what we call, considered the inherent likelihood of extortion. Not all the way down, but a little bit. And the reason it was important is that when we moved all the little pieces on the board, when it was done, the ones that were over a certain line, which we equated with a risk appetite, were where we focused the program. And that meant things like uh, hiring ethical hackers and saying, we are really worried about, and it could have been sabotage, data theft, whatever it was. So pick an example of that happening in the last six months, year, and replay those little bits in our environment to see how susceptible we are. And it was a much better way to get right to the things that the board and everyone was really worried about um, and not trying to boil the ocean, as we say. Yeah. So that's the T. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On risks, um, I, I use that very specifically to be atomic, you know, standalone, specific risks. So often vulnerabilities, you know, and a company might have a thousand of them at any given point that are open. And it's just that constant Discovery and identification process uh, similar to what I just mentioned. Let's test, see if any of those things would work in our environment. If if they would, then we've identified a risk. At the board level, though, they can't and they shouldn't consume an Excel spreadsheet with a thousand risks on it. And that's a constant tension, and I see that in boardrooms of delivering them just a massive data, and or they'll get data by tool. So it may be here's our vulnerability scanner output and the high and the mediums and lows. And just as they get through that emotional roller coaster, then they bring over to some other tool. Here's our application security. Here's the highs, mediums, and lows. Here's our bug bounty program, highs, mediums, and lows. And, it, and every quarter, there's a new tool, and another one mysteriously disappears. So what I found over time is I put together what I call a single chart called a remediation agility chart. And rather than focus on these individual risks, I just paint out the velocity of them, which isn't always a bad thing. It, it shows that you're able to discover a lot. If you have no risks and something's really wrong... But more importantly, it shows if they're getting remediated within the agreed timelines. And so there's a distinction of whether they're on time, you find a risk, if you have 30 days to fix it, for 30 days it's fine from a governance standpoint. But after that, if it's still not fixed, it goes overdue. So being able to show the red versus blue there, and the main thing to me, to the board, again, it needs to be actionable data, if that looks bad, meaning we are not working off our debt, we keep accumulating more risks and not solving them, Mm That's an actionable item for the board because it either means they need to deploy more resources or they need to move the risk appetite and say, what we're calling a high today is really a medium because we're just going to live with those. Or maybe there's a management action, right? Something they actually need to do. Okay. <laughs> on incident. On I. <laughs> uh, on incidents. I, um, I, I think the main thing there is to define severity levels and share that with the board and have agreement because right now a lot of boardrooms When the CISO or other teams bring in any incidents, they may say something like, oh, we haven't had any severity one incidents or severity two. Or we've had 10 severity four incidents, whatever it may be. But understanding what that means is something that I, I think directors can handle. And in many cases, they have more experience than the CISO does. So it needs to be really clear. This is what severity three is, two and one. We're going to bring you every severity, whatever it may be. And let the board at that point say, I want to hear, well, hold on a minute. If this happened, would, would, our, you know, would our rubric bring that to me? And if not, okay, I want to adjust it. So that then when they get the reports later, they'll know what they're not seeing as well. Right. And then you can actually have a, a real discussion about
0: what, what, where they, when they should be involved and um, you know, what they need to know and when they would need to act.
1: That's right. Because of all the, the regulation coming along about governance, a lot of it is focused on um, when is the board alerted and, and when can they take action. So by going through what I just mentioned, you're able to say things like you'll hear about all the severity three incidents once per quarter. But if there's any severity twos, we'll call the risk director uh, within six hours, something like that. Right. And that helps the regulatory side in addition to the actual directors.
0: Yeah. It also helps them gauge how worried to be. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like. like We know that if it's severity three, we're not going to hear it. We know that it's probably taken care of. That's right. Right?
1: Okay. All right. Compliance. And compliance. Uh, So compliance can mean a million things. For a startup, it usually means, have they gotten something like a SOC 2 report so they could show their potential customers uh, they have some baseline security in place? And that's a huge focus. And that's the main reason that startups today are are buying cybersecurity. For better or worse... They're not as worried about getting hacked. They're worried about getting product out the door today, and they're worried about closing deals. And then, boom, they hit the we call it the TPRM wall, third party risk management. Mm-hmm. So compliance for them is: have we gotten that report done yet? Or have we done well on that report? Are we going to have a qualified opinion, or do we have to start again? If you if you move to the other end of the spectrum, and something like a large financial institution, it's a totally different ballgame. There, it's about compliance with the specific regulations. And in many cases, it's almost like a, a calendar of which regulators. I was going to say in. multiple
0: regulators, yes. right?
1: And, and showing, in, and that's a classic red, amber, green. Here's all the ones that have been here, are here today, and will be here tomorrow. And is there any anything brewing? Are there is there any smoke before the fire? Where they ask a question and we didn't think we gave them a great answer. We're going to see have we gotten any findings back, that sort of thing. All dis- and I like it almost like a Gantt chart showing all the different engagements that are going on, what the timeline is, and then you can color code if there's any blockers or obstacles or warning signs.
0: One thing um I noticed in the presentation that you had was that um you shouldn't have more than 5 slides. So is it 1 for T, 1 for R, 1 for I, 1 for C,
1: 1 extra or Yeah, that 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 works. I mean, like I said, I like to have you know, keep some optionality to flex with it. Um, I, I, I found, and I never thought this early on, and I tried it, and the board liked it. Um, number five, besides the title, I find an, a narrative executive summary, mm-hmm. you know, writing a letter. I, and I put it on a slide, but I like to actually write through and, and something like, you know, this last quarter, there was a lot of attacks on blah, blah, blah in the ecosystem. We evaluated our defenses and found that we had some susceptibilities and we were able to remediate them timely. Next paragraph. That they like to read, and I, I always think of The Economist, yeah. and at the front of The Economist, and I would literally use that how they have a kind of random bold words, mm-hmm. and if you just read the bold words, you'll know, oh, wait, wait, I want to read more about that, let me read the whole paragraph. I like that approach a lot with that one slide.
0: Um, so do you, you're, you think that from those five slides that boards really should have what they need to know to both um, engage meaningfully with the CISO, but also... To fulfill whatever regulatory um, fiduciary responsibilities that they may
1: have, soon. Yep. <laughs> soon, I, I do. And the one little trick to trick, so to speak, that that didn't come up yet, and I'm glad that um, that you, you asked that is there's really a pyramid of governance, and the board is the tip of it, and the width is the amount of slides. <laughs> so you got five slides there, but I like those five slides to be among. 25 slides at the first level, the internal governance team. So there's more material there. And, it's the, and, and as much as possible, I like for those five to start early and persist all the way through the governance chain. And it's usually a, a little mini governance season. So each quarter, there's usually um, a, a tactical cybersecurity governance group. And then depending on the size of the company, there'll often be one to bring in all the subsidiary leadership and let them know about things that are going on and then it finally rolls up to that board. And I like to, at each step, have fewer slides. But one of the benefits of that is that if the board has any questions about it, then they could bring up those slides. What I do, and then there's the old appendix, because in some cases companies feel that they just absolutely have to, and they've committed to providing some kind of metrics or something like that. Mm -hmm. Throw them in the appendix there. But one of the Mm -hmm. the things that I think is most powerful in an appendix, and and directors will read. um, Unlike many of us in meetings all day, directors will read. And uh, something that really helps is the minutes from those subordinate meetings because what they, they can't do it all. And they only have a 45 minutes, a quarter or something like that. And so the most powerful thing to directors is to know that the GC and the CFO and the CEO and the president are on top of this day to day between those 45 minute little vignettes. And the best way to do that is to see those five turned into 25 slides have been presented to these groups and see the questions that they asked. Mm -hmm. And the concerns that they raise and how they influence the program and how the CISO responded, Okay, we're going to change that. Uh, So so that's really important evidence that can be really powerful.
0: Yeah. Um, Let's just talk about CISOs um, and their opportunities for being on boards now. Um, I would imagine that, you know, as you said, now that regulators are asking, what is the level of cyber expertise that there's there's an opportunity there? For CISOs. What, what do you what kind of advice would you give to CISOs who actually want to be on boards? You already mentioned, you know, taking an NACD course and actually learning how to be a board director, at least at first in the abstract. Um, but but how do they make that jump? Yeah, it,
1: it's a tough one. I, the one thing I like to say, I don't like to say it actually, but it's accurate: is nobody wants to board to burn a board seat on a CISO. right? And I I think that. What I mean by that is if you're just a one-trick pony and all you're bringing to the table is cybersecurity, it makes more sense than what we see is boards training up existing directors. You know, And if you have 10 uh, independent public directors, chances are one of them already had a technology background or something like that, which was pretty adjacent to cybersecurity. So you're going to start seeing those things work their way into the proxy statements over the next nine months anyway, where, oh yeah, this director we've already had, also we never mentioned it, but has this exposure to cybersecurity. Um, but I think beyond that, um, for CISOs, and the the reason why getting educated on is so powerful and serving on any board opportunities that you have, especially if there's something like a not-for-profit that is very action-oriented, is really powerful, is because it's all the non-cyber bits, that breadth that you have to round out. And so you have to, and, and if you're the type of CISO That is a kind of a finger pointer where you're just, well, you're going to tell everybody everything that's wrong just so that if it really goes bad, you're on the record having shown them all. And I told you so. Nobody's interested in that. And and it's not really a good way to be a CISO either, but it's certainly not going to get you into the boardroom because if you're bringing up things that are impossible to fix, it's almost like you're just trying to put things on the record and, and trying to create negligence where there wasn't any. So I think the main thing is to, um, I hate the generic term, but to be a business person, and even in, in when you're bringing forward security ideas and wanting to uplift security, be your own devil's advocate and think about what this is going to keep the business from doing and be really sympathetic to that. And, and yet yeah, whatever firm you're at, um, make those close relationships with a subsidiary and line of business leaders and learn what's going on there. Now, that's, it's one thing to get there and to understand all of that and to rehearse that. And then it's a different thing to kind of get the CV that shows that off or to get beyond the stigma of the CISO title so that when boards are looking through candidates, they don't just say, oh, CISO, I already know what that's all about, but rather can figure out, oh, CISO and so much more. And I've seen some people do that by pivoting into like a chief risk officer or chief technology risk officer late in their career to kind of put a capstone on it or even take over a line of business that might have a heavy security adjacency. Like, and it sounds crazy, but something like cryptocurrency or something that's fraud heavy where the company may want to put a security front person in, in, on top of that. Um, those are some things where even if it's a little bit of a career risk, maybe it's even a pay cut. Maybe it's with a, a JV or a startup um, from your company that has some risk associated with it. Now it's, well, how does that round me out though? And maybe that outweighs those risks.
0: Do you see that given all the, non-cyber risk that's taken center stage right now especially of course in our sector um that cyber risk will be in any way deprioritized at least in the short term from a board priority perspective
1: uh no and you know part of it is because it's so cross sector and cybersecurity you know adversaries don't care about the sector more times than not Whereas um, a lot of the other types of risks are very, and they're somewhat cyclical too, but they're also sector specific, right? So if it's credit risk, it's just in one spot. If it's um, climate risk, it may be in different types of companies. But cybersecurity seems to just be cross company. So no matter what, it's going to get a lot of airtime in, in groups that are just about governance that are sector agnostic. Uh, th- now, you know, with any luck, we'll all solve cybersecurity and then it'll start to come off the radar a little bit. But um, there's not a lot of promise there right now, at least for the next 20 years or so. Cool. Um, Anything else you want to say? Um, No, it's great to be back uh, in the financial services sector and to see everybody with FSISAC. And um, thank you for putting together this summit. And um, I'm looking forward to the next one already.
0: Thanks so much again to Jerry for being our guest on this episode. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, subscribe at FSISAC.com slash Insight, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And of course... Follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks so much again, and I hope you learned something.